Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll study together today the curriculum of Christianity, which is Jesus himself. I'm going to tell you that uh, I have looked forward to this passage with a lot of anticipation for a long time. Since the very beginning of our study in Ephesians, I knew this verse, this, these two verses were coming and have been so blessed and not been disappointed with all the treasure that we're going to find in this simple description of a Christian. I'm going to read from verses 17 down through verse 21 to give us a little head start and a little background into what we have um, studied last week and what we'll tag on this week as well. Ephesians chapter 4, let me pick it up in verse, nine, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become, they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. On a cold morning in February of 2010, a man named Richard Code left a note on his landlady's door. Quote, if I'm not back by Monday, please call the authorities, end quote. Along with the note were left a set of GPS coordinates and a list of the supplies he had taken with him. As professional as that sounds, however, don't be fooled into thinking that Mr. Code was some kind of survival expert. In the weeks and months leading up to this midwinter outing in uh, the wilderness of Canada, Mr. Code had begun to follow a new cable television show called Survivor Man that had just come on at the time. The premise of the show is simple. The host heads out into the wilderness to demonstrate that being knowledgeable and being prepared can actually save your life. Mr. Code was a big fan of the show Survivor Man, and he set out that morning and he felt that he could certainly brave the elements, the cold, and applying what he'd learned from the television show. Four days later, his body was found, recovered by helicopter in an area that was no longer accessible by foot, thanks to a blanket of heavy snowfall. His solar blanket did not provide adequate and unable to start a fire with the wet timber. He succumbed to hypothermia and died. Richard Code was an enthusiast with very little experience and almost no training. He set out to imitate and to emulate the professionals he had seen who'd had advantages of many years of instruction and practice and found himself overcome by the cruel realities of the climate of winter in Canada. That's a tragic story. So sad. 
but it highlights the basic principle that knowing about something doesn't mean you know how to do it. Seeing it done is a world away from doing it yourself. And enthusiasm can only get you so far. A very thin emulation of Christianness, if we can call it that, is not the same as worshiping and walking with Jesus. Knowing about church and knowing about Christianity sometimes fools someone into thinking that they're further down the track with God than they really are. Attending church, going to Bible studies, downloading sermons, listening to Christian music, having believing friends, these things don't necessarily equip you to worship and walk with Jesus. A zeal for the ideas and principles of the culture of Christianity does not equate to worshiping your Savior in spirit and in truth, appreciating a well-crafted sermon, digging into a book, even being able to explain a theological truth, memorizing your favorite passage of Scripture will not ensure that you're living it and that you're applying it. Listen, life is way, way too short and eternity is far too long to end up the spiritual equivalent of Richard Code, who thought he knew more than he really did. The text before us today, Ephesians 4, 20 and 21, is, is a watershed passage. It's the definitive articulation of our experience as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ in a profound and in a simple way. In fact, it's not too much to say that the next few minutes while you're sitting in the service considering Paul's words, could make a seismic shift in your Christian experience. If you feel like you're kind of running in water in your spiritual life, you're trying hard but not getting the traction that you want to, you're, 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 you're expending effort but not getting where you want to be, if you feel like something is maybe missing in your Christian walk, in your Christian experience, th this, this passage is for you. This passage is definitely for me. This passage can free you up and focus your eyes on the satisfying path toward Christ. In short, Paul directs our attention to the curriculum of Christianity. In other words, curriculum is what you learn to to, to pass a class, to, to learn from a class, to, to be involved with, with a, a set of teachings. This is the curriculum that Paul outlines in very simple order for Christianity. And note this, it's not a code of conduct and it's not a theological creed. It's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, behavior is important. We just saw it last week and we'll see it next week. Creeds are important. That's why we have a doctrinal statement at our church. But none of those things are important if they're not attached to, flow from, and flow to our living, resurrected Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break it down as Paul does in looking at two aims 
of the curriculum of Christianity. Two aims of the curriculum of the Christian faith, of Christianity. The first is in the very first section of verse 20, a decisive transformation from the past. This picks up where we were last week. A decisive transformation from the past. In the New American Standard, it's the first two words, but you did not learn Christ this way, but you. It calls us to make a contrast with what Paul has just said in verses 17 and 19. The ESV says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Same thing, but you, but you. You're different than the world. That's the point. We looked at verses 17 to 19 last time. They described the way readers used to be, the Ephesians used to be before conversion, how they used to live before coming to faith in the gospel. Verse 17. And look at all these, we call them noetic. It's a Greek for, word for mind, these thinking uh, words that all have to do with Christianity being formulated and founded. And, and we follow Christ with our thinking, with our mind. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, verse 17, that you walk, and we looked at that for some weeks, walk means to live, it's just a euphemism for living, that you live, that you walk, no longer as the Gentiles live or walk, in the uselessness, the futility of their thinking, their mind, being darkened in their perspective, their understanding, another mind word, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance, another mental word that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That's the mission control central. That's another thinking phrase. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice. Now we move from the mind to the practice, from the internal to the external the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So we noted last time this description of life before Christ is a description of life without Christ. So think about that. Life before Christ is life without Christ. It involves a combination of sin in the mind, the thinking, and a sin in the life, the external application of decisions. Paul is very clear that this old way of thinking and living is to be abandoned. <laughs> Said it as simply as possible. When you come to Christ, your life changes. If your life doesn't change when you make a profession to be a follower of Christ, no matter what you think, you're, you're not a true Christian. Jesus said many will make it all the way to the judgment in Matthew 7. They get all the way there thinking they're walking into heaven. In fact, they give a resume. Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we do these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Paul's going to take a deeper dive in verses 22 and following with the imagery of change with the idea of putting off clothes, putting on clothes, changing clothes. Look at verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, the way you used to be before a Christian, you lay aside the old man, the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you being renewed, is this a surprise, in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Christians start acting righteously and holy differently than their old lives. 
Not perfectly, but progressively. The simple contrast here calls for decisive transformation from the past when a person believes and receives the gospel. Now, I want to be careful here. This decisive transformation is more dramatic in some lives than in others. If you grew up in the church, if you grew up with godly parents, if you grew up with with a godly family, your transformation may be less noticeable to some, but it's no less dramatic from the inside out, where you're now pursuing, as we'll see in just a moment, you're pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ, who you love, who you're following, who you live for, and you're no longer living for yourself. Even if it's subtly observed from the outside, it's still a transformation that takes place from the inside out. John Calvin says this, he whose life differs not from that of unbelievers has learned nothing of Christ. For the knowledge of Christ cannot be separated from the mortification of the flesh, end quote. John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Walter Layfield says, the teaching is, in summary, that there should be a radical difference between pre- and post-conversion character. Pretty simple, isn't it? The change from our old way of thinking and living harkens back to verses 17 to 19 and looks ahead to verses 22 and 24. And right in the middle, he talks about the energy source for that transformation. We read it last week. This this is really an explanation of what Paul indicated in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So in that little word, but you, he's talking about don't walk as the Gentiles walk. And he explains the Gentiles walk. And he says, but you, you're different. A decisive transformation from the past. You live differently than the unbelievers. You think differently than unbelievers. Your worldview is completely different than unbelievers. Why? How? Now we get to the heart of the passage. The second aim of the curriculum of Christianity, a decisive transformation from the past. Number two, a personal engagement with Christ. A personal, you could even say experience if you want to, a personal experience, personal engagement with Christ. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. First thing to notice is the uniqueness of what Paul is saying and how he is saying it. Now, in the Greek and in the English, this is really bad grammar. Really bad grammar. But sometimes bad grammar makes really good theology. Peter O'Brien says this, Greek scholar. The formulation, you did not learn Christ that way, is without parallel. The phrase, to learn a person appears nowhere else in the Greek Bible, and to date, it has not been traced to any pre-biblical Greek document, end quote. In other words, there's no other place in ancient literature where it says, learn a person. 
You did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't expect him to say that, honestly. But you, you might expect him to say, but you did not learn to follow Christ in this way. But you did not learn to serve Christ in this way. But you did not learn to worship Christ in this way. But you did not learn to believe in Christ in this way. He says none of that. He says, you didn't learn Christ in this way. Another place where Paul uses really bad grammar for really good theology, parallel to this, Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That, that doesn't even make sense. To live is Christ. should be to live is loving Christ, serving Christ, worshiping Christ. To live is Christ. It makes a massive point on the person of the Savior. Parallel in Colossians 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Received Him. Not the doctrine, not the theology, not the gospel, but Him. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, And Paul says to the Colossians later, I mean, think about, think about this in the context. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind, there's our mind again, on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says this, when Christ, you know what it says? Who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christ, who is our life. Does that describe you? He's your life. What Paul is saying here, you did not learn Christ in this way, is that Jesus himself was the subject of apostolic preaching and teaching, which is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Just go on a quick tour with me. Just If you want to write these down, that's great. We'll post them tomorrow, but just listen. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is preached, and he goes on to talk about the resurrection, 2 Corinthians 1.9, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you. He's the message. 2 Corinthians 4.5, for we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Acts 5.42, and every day in the temple from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. He was the message. He wasn't just the subject of the message. He was the message and still is to this day. My philosophy of ministry is rooted in two verses that I love, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Listen to how it begins. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man complete in Christ. We proclaim him. The Greek is even more emphatic. Some of your vers- uh, translations might get it even more accurate. Him, him we proclaim. The content of Paul's message was the person of Jesus from beginning to end. His proclamation was permeated. It was saturated with love and wonder and commitment and obedience 
to Jesus, to his Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I think we need to pause here for just a moment and say, as opposed to what? What's the error? What's the alternative? The most critical error to avoid in our walks with the Lord, in our Christianity, in our ministries, both public and private, is neglecting the person of Jesus in our faith. I know that sounds silly, but but work with me here for a minute. It's easy to forget him. You say, and, and do what? Well, how many times do we think of Christianity as behavior modification, as a way of acting different, a, a way of thinking different, different than the world? We're conservatives, and, and our worldview is different. All that's true. It's just not the tip of the spear. Or our Christianity is reduced to a creed or things we believe Boxes we check, doctrine we confirm. That's important, and it's very true that we should believe those things, but that flows from our understanding that God, God became a man, dwelt among us, died for our sins, rose from the grave, taught his disciples for six weeks, then ascended to heaven where he sits at this moment. Physically in his human body, he is somewhere sitting at the right hand of God. You know what he's doing? He's praying for you. Is your faith in faith or is your faith in Christ? Listen. Behavior modification is important. We just read it in verses 17 to 19, and we'll read it in 20 to 24 again. Actually, the rest of the book is about behavior modification, but it's behavior modification because of Christ. Not just to be better or do differently. It's because of him, Jesus himself. Paul said to the Corinthians, I came to you. I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now read 1 Corinthians. Does he, does he say things beside just Christology in that book? Well, yes, but it's all in relation to the Lord himself. He told the Corinthians again later and two letters later, for we are not like the many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak Christ in the sight of God, 2 Corinthians 2.17. The writer of the Hebrews picks this up so clearly. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance of the, and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on what? Who? Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I feel confident saying if you're, if you're at a troubling point in your walk with the Lord, if you, if you feel like you're running in water, if you feel like you can't get traction, 
My suspicion is that it's because Christ is not where you're fixing your eyes. It's usually on ourselves and our circumstances. But when we see ourselves and our circumstances in the light of what we know about the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a game changer. Jesus is our message. Jesus is the gospel. He doesn't just provide salvation. He is salvation. He doesn't just provide counsel. He is our counselor. And if we don't communicate the right message, we will create the wrong allegiance. People we share Christ with should be drawn to Jesus more than us, more than our message to Jesus, more than to the Christian way of living. So Paul says, you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, in the way of behaving like an unbeliever. You, you learned Christ differently. That was, that was your introduction into the into the faith. How can we practically equip ourselves to learn Christ? Well, it shouldn't be complicated. You learn and study and memorize the truth about his deity. You learn and study and memorize truth about his humanity. You study his character, his claims, his teachings, his miracles, his parables. You study his sufferings and why and how. You study his death and what it meant, his resurrection and its surety. His responses to life in his interactions with people, his responses to death, his grace, his influence, his virgin birth, his all-consuming satisfaction that he promises. And his gospel, his good news, it is about him, through him, and to him. I've told you about my friend Dale in the past. Dale, um, and this is, I don't mean to make this any kind of legalistic, um, even encouragement, but D Dale um, made an impact on me because he, he told me he'd made a commitment years before that he had a Bible reading plan, but alongside his Bible reading plan, he made a commitment that every day of his life, he was going to read a chapter of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just one chapter. And if he had a short week or a short day and he couldn't read his Bible reading plan, he was going to read for sure one chapter of the gospel. So why? He said, I never want to be more than 24 hours away from something about my Savior. I don't think that's a, an imperative, but we could all learn something from that, I think. We never want to be far from remembering him Jesus is so amazing. You know, what's impressive to all of us, I know it would be our testimony if we gathered around and talked about it, about Christ, is every other person that you get to know better, the more you get to know them, the more flawed and less perfect they become in your mind. But the more you get to know Jesus, the more perfect and precious, and priceless, and worthy, and valuable he becomes. So much so that he redefined eternal life differently than we do. We, we say eternal life, pretty easy. Eternal, forever, life, living. Living forever. Seems clear enough. And that's certainly part of eternal life. 
But Jesus defined eternal life in the high priestly prayer of John 17, and he said this, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and or through Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus defined eternal life as knowing him, relating to him, having a living, abiding, ongoing, real, can I say it, experiential relationship with the Jesus who is not dead in a tomb, but is, he's alive. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. Colossians 3.4, Christ is our life. One of our guides through Ephesians has been Dr. Harold Honer. I, I lean on him so much every week. He's my favorite commentator. Sometimes I want to just get up here and read you his commentary. I think it'd be better than, than what I would say. Let me just tell you what he said this week on this passage. Believers continually learn Christ, who is alive and seated at the right hand of the heavenlies. The new person's ordered life is not concerned with learning the law, but rather hearing about and learning the living Christ and ordering his or her life to please him, end quote. Now that's said from a pretty stout and strong theologian who's saying that all we learn about how we live and how we think and what we do and how we feel is important, but it's important in the shadow of, of learning Christ. And then Paul goes on in verse 20 to tell us the details about what a personal engagement with Christ really means. And for that, we're going to kind of break that down into three little sections. First, what does engagement mean? Christ is our initiation into salvation. This shouldn't surprise anyone. If indeed, verse 21, you have heard him. If indeed you have heard him. This is interesting. It's very unlikely that anyone, maybe a few, maybe someone who's traveled, maybe someone who moved, but very few, the large majority of all the people who would ever read this never heard the voice of Jesus in the flesh. And yet he says, if indeed you've heard him. So where do they hear him? When do they hear him? What does this mean? It means that they had heard about the gospel which is about Jesus of Nazareth, and to accurately hear gospel truth is to accurately hear Jesus himself. In the same way that you and I accurately hear the voice of God by accurately understanding the word of God, as they heard the good news of Jesus in their initial understanding of the gospel and read Acts chapter 17 and 18 with the, with the Ephesian church, you can see that they're their draw was to Christ himself. The point Paul is making here is that the person of Christ was their initiation into the faith. Accurately hearing about him was hearing directly from him. Doesn't that put a big, amazing responsibility on all of us as we look at the word of God to make sure we're understanding it carefully so we're hearing him accurately? Remember Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him 
and that proclamation of him, then it's the behavior, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man mature or complete in Christ. It all goes back to initiation from him. He is the gospel. Christ is our message. And he was the message for the Ephesians. If you've heard him, if you've heard him. Secondly, Christ is our continuation of salvation. He's our continuation. He's, he's not just the way into salvation. He's the way through and to walk in salvation and have been taught in him. The, the power of that Greek verb is having been taught and continually ongoing being taught in him. It's an ongoing process. It speaks to how the Ephesians had grown in their faith. It was by learning and maturing in their theology as it coalesced around the person of Christ. Now, in him is a favorite phrase of Paul. We've studied it many times. It really means in fellowship with him. In him means in fellowship with him, relating to him. Just flip the page for a moment. Look back at Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remembering that you were, speaking of an unbelieving time, at that time separate from Christ, not separate from the gospel, separate from, see how he personalized it? Separate, separate from Christ himself. He personalizes it. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been bought, brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the initiation, there's the ongoing. You've been brought near, you're growing. You're not separated any longer from the life of Christ because you came in through him and you continue with and to him. Paul informs us that our lives are to evidence our union with Christ in holiness and in obedience to him. And we do that by honoring his word, the Bible. And we've seen and we'll see more clearly this happens within the context of his church and by the power of his spirit. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn, there's our word, learn from me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest, satisfaction for your souls. So the way through to grow in Christ is to stay close to understanding Christ and understanding him better. And this climaxes in the last phrase, just as truth is in Jesus. Christ is the integrating centrality of salvation. From him, to him, through him goes our faith. Just as truth is in Jesus. Unfortunately, it's way too easy to make a good theological point with unintended misleading implications. I, I, I just have noticed over the last few decades, there's well-intended believers are, are so inclined to encourage all of us to stand for the truth, to guard the truth to defend the truth, and all of that is biblically uh, mandated. But truth is not an abstraction. Truth, truth is related to Jesus himself. It's personal. It's his truth. It's his doctrine. The truth cannot be abstracted from the Savior. 
In other words, when we point to the thing of our faith instead of the person of our faith, we're out of balance. Paul speaks of truth several times in Ephesians. It's one of his favorite concepts back in 113. In him, there's our phrase, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and he's telling us now the gospel is Jesus. See how that's related and connected? Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, verse 25, speak truth, each one of you, his neighbor. Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then I can't wait to get to the believer's armor in Ephesians 6, verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, the very first thing he says, having girded your loins with truth. That's not an abstraction, folks. It's not just a theology book with words on a paper. Truth is in Jesus, he says here in verse 21. This truth understood and defined by what we know to be true about Jesus and all relates to him. By the way, if you've been reading through Ephesians, if you've been studying Ephesians, you, you might have noticed something about this, this verse. I'm sure some of you did. He calls him Jesus. Without any title, not the Lord Jesus, not Jesus Christ, not Christ Jesus, only Jesus. This is the only time that Paul uses Jesus with no descriptor anywhere in Ephesians except here. And every word of God is important and every absence is important. So why is that significant here? Truth is in Jesus. Well, when Paul uses Jesus elsewhere with no title, Lord or Christ, it's almost always pointing to his humanity and his historicity. I think he's pointing to the historical fact of the Savior who is himself the embodiment of truth, the man from Nazareth who was God in flesh. That's where truth resides. Walter Layfield says, to express it in retrospect from the perspective of the church, the central truth of Christianity does not reside mainly in its creeds or sacraments, but in Jesus himself. The historical Lord Jesus. Can I, I don't want to make any assumptions. Can I just ask you, do you believe, do you believe that Jesus really was? Not just a myth, not just a story your parents created to keep you out of trouble. Do you believe that Jesus was a boy who grew up in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, ministered in Galilee, crucified in Jerusalem, historically really happened, and that his identity was fully God and truly man? Thomas Vincent, one of my favorite Puritan writers, he's just almost tongue-in-cheek when he says this. If you would attain to love for Jesus Christ, whom you have never seen, you must get a thorough persuasion that there is such a person as Jesus Christ. 
and that he is such a person, indeed, as the Scriptures have revealed him to be. The reason why the heathens and infidels are without love for Christ is because they have never heard of him. And the reason that many nominal Christians have heard of Christ and are without love to him is because they are not really persuaded that there is or ever was such a person as Jesus Christ in the world. If you would attain attain love for Christ, you must give a firm assent to this truth, which is the greatest of all and the very pillar and foundation of the whole Christian religion, that Christ really is. And the history of him is no cunning devised fable, end quote. You know what I love about that quote? He doesn't say that Christ really was. (laughs) That Christ really is. Christianity, I feel silly saying this. Christianity is about Christ. Christ is Christianity. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say my theology, my creeds, me. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, Philippians 1.21. Christ is living. Living is Christ. Again, Colossians 4.4. Christ is our life. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all so that They who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, we live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. We say this every time we come, almost every time we come to uh, the Lord's table and the Lord's supper, but Jesus knows and knew that we would be prone to forgetting him that after all he was and all he did for us on those short three decades on this planet, that we would end up smuggling in behavior modification or creedalism and checking theological boxes and be satisfied with what he gives us rather than the giver himself. So he said, as often as you do this, do this to remember me. Remember me, he says. The implication of your Christianity being about Christ has both positive and negative reactions. Negatively, and this is a good thing, sin, if Jesus is our life, if we are learning Jesus, sin is not an abstraction anymore. It's a personal offense against the Savior who paid for those sins. A personal offense against the Lord you know. Positively, it's a relationship you can enjoy with a Lord who knows and loves you. You didn't learn Christ this way. You're taught in Him. You're taught in Him. And the truth of your life is in Jesus. So can we be really practical? What does that look like? When you read your Bible, is Christ in mind? 
Oh, don't find Jesus in places where he's not, but is in Christ, is Christ in mind? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.18, 1.17, 1.15, 16.17.18, he is the one who created the earth. It's Jesus. You don't have to search hard to find him, but is he the focus of your faith? Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 3, Oh, that I may know, relate to, have a relationship with him. Are you longing to do that? Here's where it affects you. It affects your Bible reading because you're hearing from him. It affects your prayer life because you're talking to him. I really believe that Paul's greatest concern for the believers at Ephesus, Colossae, Thessaloniki, go out down the list, was that they might substitute Christianity for Christ himself. I truly believe if he's the focus that everything else, everything else in life, anything it throws you, you can handle because your Savior is someone you know and you know he's with you. He'll never leave you, he'll forsake you. He won't leave you as an orphan. He's the focus. But if you're struggling, my suspicion is you're probably, you've probably dislodged him from the focus of your faith and you've made it about something else, either your circumstances or yourself. Oh, circumstances are important. There's a lot of scripture about dealing with circumstances. In dealing with self, there's a lot of scripture about dying to self and understanding how to change and be transformed. But all of that is in the shadow of our Savior. He's real. He's alive. And he is reaching out for relationship with those that he purchased with his blood. Learn Christ. Learn Christ. I hope you know him. If you don't, great day. Great passage to say, that's someone I want to know. We would love to introduce you to him and to explain to you how you could know the gospel, become a child of God. There's a lot more on this issue coming up in the next few verses. So we've just started just started peeling that orange. There's a lot, a lot of treasure here.